Horror Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Haig. With me, as always, a Rob Ben Huff. What up, Huff? What up, Loudmouth? Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a new person in the Loudmouth house. That is correct. Yeah. Well, technically, she's been there the whole time, but now she's just <laughs> out. Out. <laughs> yeah, big thanks to everybody who, uh, who congratulated my family and sent blessings uh, our way for the birth of my daughter. That happened last Thursday, and uh, yeah, she is tiny, five pounds, seven ounces. So, actually, I think she's already gained like two ounces. Anyway, and uh, a big uh, what up and shalom to everybody listening out there. What up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. Good to see the Nichols with us today. Um, Yeah. And Rob and I, before we came on the air, we were talking, we were chatting. We decided that uh, we missed our calling. Rob and I decided that we should have started a boy band and that that boy band should be called Collective Amnesia. It's not too late. (laughs) It would just be a man band. A man band, not a boy band. Yeah, well, uh, One Direction is playing up in uh, Seattle tonight. And, uh, yeah, so we think that, uh, you know, they they sold out this stadium of 70,000 people. Maybe that's how we could get some money uh, to, to finance. You know, I wonder like, what kind of money they're going to bring in. Oh, man, can you imagine? 70,000 people. What are tickets at? they got to be 50 bucks a piece at least. I bet they're closer to 100. Spendy, spendy. Hoo-wee. That's some cash. Anyway. Okay. Well, hey, uh, we had a lot go on this past week. And I think a lot of it had to do with our, our last show, our last subject matter. The last show was on what we thought were the 10 biggest distractions. Now, the funny thing is, is we put, that, we put the, uh, the list that we had up online and asked people to put it in order. And um, Mark Randall. Oh, Mark Randall's calling me right now uh, on my cell phone. So I, he should know that I'm doing a show, first of all, because he's the one who's in charge of the, in charge of the chat room and also in charge of... <laughs> and also in, is he on there right now i i don't see him um uh, maybe I, maybe i should send him a text message anyway um silence Lois, oh. wow are we are we not on are we having uh technical difficulties hang on just like let's ask let's ask hang on hang on everybody sorry technical difficulties let's see what the chat room says it says oh Says you're on. You're on. Okay. Good. It's just Lois Morgan. Um, okay. So anyway, um, let's get back to it. We did this show on um, the 10 biggest distractions and those 10 biggest dr- distractions we put up on the Facebook page. And we asked people to number them according to what they thought were the 10 biggest, distra- you know, what was the most distracting to the least distracting. Now, here's the funny thing is that if you go onto the Facebook page, you can tell who are the people who have bought in to some of these distractions? 
And the reason you can tell is they took certain things out of the list. You know, there were some people who took out Paleo Hebrew. <laughs> there were some people who took out Olive Tav, which tells you what. They're buying into it. Oh, they took it off the distractions. They took it off the distractions and implanted their own things into the distractions. Uh, and so, you know, what I would have done if somebody would have put something like one Torah onto a list of the biggest distractions, I would have put that as number 10, least distracting, because it's not a distraction. I wouldn't have taken it off. Anyway, so we had uh, some people say, what about flat earth? Flat earth, yes, it is quickly becoming a distraction, uh, because, but you know, you really have to be either a major conspiracy theorist, meaning that you think that every nation in the world, actually even more than that, um, I, I watched this great documentary on Netflix last week, and it was called uh, Antarctica, A Year on Ice. I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting documentary. They show all of the outposts. In one, in one section, they show all of the outposts um, from different nations that is down in Antarctica. It's not all scientists that are down there. You mean at the edge of the earth. <laughs> and that's just it. These flat earthers, they believe that Antarctica actually goes all the way around. It's a circle that goes all the way around this flat earth. And that if you go too far uh, into Antarctica, that y- you actually see the edge of the earth. If you can get past the ice monsters. Okay. <laughs> the abominable little snowman. Yes, exactly. But the point is uh, that they show a map of Antarctica, the round earth Antarctica, of course, and they show where all of the different outposts are. And lo and behold, there's one right in the middle. There's a bunch on the outside. There's some on the insides. And it's so they, they've all, have they been to, has, have we been to the South Hole? When I say we, I mean like... Yeah, we have an American outpost there. Right at the South Pole. Oh, yeah. People go up to the South Pole from the from uh, from our, our uh, outpost all the time. Wow. I've and, never, I've never looked into it. I highly recommend this this documentary. It's very interesting. And actually, I, I thought it would only be scientists down there. It's not. Normal people go down there to work and like run the store. You know, there's a store down in the... It's a little city, basically. Little town. Uh, that's the American they sell outpost. ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, are, what kind of store? What do they sell? Hot coffee? They sell everything. I mean, everything from uh, cigarettes and coffee up to, uh, wow. you know, it, because people live there. So, you know, you have to be able to go in and buy they're food. they're like doing research or whatever. They're, yeah, they're... It's, it's, you know, it's all scientific. And they talk a little bit about the, uh, about the treaty that was signed. And it's not saying that no one can do- go down there. It's saying that every, but b- basically it says that Antarctica is a, is a na- nation of communities. So in other words, there's communities like, you know, the Germans have something down there. The Russians have an outpost down there. Basically, every nation has the ability to be represented down there and do scientific work if they want to. That's the point. It's very interesting. Anyway, so I think that just in watching that documentary, once again, debunks the flat earth nonsense. Yeah, but Caleb, I don't think you realize that that was produced by NASA. Of course. That's propaganda. Yep, exactly. My favorite was on, I think it was on the YouTube comments. It said, the biggest distraction, Rob and Caleb show. Yeah, that's from our friend Miguel, who uh, who really, I don't think, likes us at all. He, he I think almost every show he posts how uh, we are ignorant or, uh, you know, we, we don't know what we're talking about. Uh, and I have his quote here. He says, uh, I protest the number one distraction of the Messianic movement should be dot, 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 
The Robin Caleb show drops Mike and walks away. <laughs> uh, I got to say, he's got a I, good I like sense that. of humor. That was funny. Yeah, he's got a good sense of humor. Um, so there's that. So, and then uh, the other thing that happened this this past week is I got into a little debate on Facebook, and I wanted to bring this up because who better to talk about this? We've talked, we've had whole shows on this before, but it doesn't matter. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about it for a brief second again. Uh, there was a um, a post by my Facebook friend Mike. It's called Seven Things You May Not Know About the King James Bible. And he brings, I, I mean, I've studied the King James Version Bible before. And so I, there wasn't anything new on that list, but I'm sure that it's, uh, you know, it's good. It's definitely true and good information for those who would like to read it. In the comment section, I said one of the things that uh, never seems to get mentioned about the KJV is that it's named after, well, obviously, King James, who happened to be a homosexual. Um, and so I, I do find it interesting that people say that the, you know, the people who are KJV only say that it's a uh, God-breathed con- translation. Yet, for some reason, they, it, some reason God named it after a homosexual, if it was the inspired text. That didn't make any sense to me. Ooh. Anyway, um, so there's, uh, we get some, we, there was some more uh, conversation on this post. The New Testament was written in Greek. That is what we have been told, but I highly doubt this. There is a lot of evidence that it was written in Hebrew and later translated into Greek. That, uh, now, that's, <laughs> that's from somebody named Kevin. Um, and I'm sorry, but I just don't understand wh- where we're getting this evidence. In fact, I think it's absolutely the opposite. Uh, Rob has gone through great lengths, and jump in here anytime, Rob, uh, to show that actually the Peshitta was, is obviously a translation from the Greek. How do we know that, Rob? How do we know that the Peshitta was a translation from the Greek and not the other way around? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it's tough to talk about these kind of things without people thinking that there's like some sort of conspiracy or something, you know? Uh, on there, and there's different ways to look at it. One way is just the language. For people who have studied Aramaic in its different fra- uh, different phases, so biblical Aramaic, Aramaic from the Second Temple period, mm-hmm. um, and and the different dialects of the different Targumim. So we have like the Palestinian Targumim, we have the Babylonian Targumim, and we understand that uh, Aramaic is a living language with local dialects. One of the dialects is we call Syriac, which is a Christian uh, type of uh, a dialect of Aramaic from up north. It's called Syriac because it's from Syria. And it, uh, that is the, the dialect that the Peshitta is in. For someone who doesn't know anything about Aramaic, they just hear, oh, Aramaic New Testament. They think Jesus spoke Aramaic, therefore this must be, you know, and then they build from that. But, but when you understand the nuance of the different dialects of Aramaic, the influence of Greek on Syriac, the places where the Peshitta Syriac text just transliterates Greek words into from the from the Greek original Greek into the Aramaic, where there would be a, a if it was 
if it was genuinely Aramaic, they wouldn't be using these Greek words. They'd be using Aramaic Jewish words. words. Yeah. They'd be using Jewish Aramaic words, not Christian Aramaic words. So anyway, there's that's one way to look at it. The other is that it, uh, looking at its uh, early history, where it emerged, so on and so forth. And those are the things like Roth or the Nitsari Press and all these things. They really sensationalize untruths. And they've sold a lot of the, that book. And I know there's other versions out there that you can buy. But uh, if anybody's interested, they can see my article, my review of Roth's translation by Nitsari Press. And I, I get into a lot of the detail there. Well, and then- um, I'm still waiting. You know, I got the one email from Roth couple months ago saying, you know, you know, that he was going to somehow reply to my points. And I don't know. I will, I'm still waiting to see. We got a question in the, we got a question in the uh, chat room. Uh, Andre says, so the Syriac is translated from the Septuagint. This doesn't sound too good for Aramaic. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a good, I, I'm glad, I'm glad uh, Iconoclast asked that. Um, so there's just, for a moment, bear with me. I'm going to use Old Testament and New Testament because that's what the field uses to distinguish Tanakh from apostolic writings. So there's what they call a Peshitta OT, a Peshitta Old Testament. And then there's a Peshitta NT, Peshitta New Testament. The, uh, at least it looks like the Torah, at least the Torah of the Peshitta Old Testament. So the Peshitta Torah is a translation from Hebrew into Syriac. It's uh, the Peshitta Torah is closer to the Torah, Hebrew Torah, than the than Targum Onkelos, Targum Yonathan. As a matter of fact, just this last quarter we had for our Aramaic class, we read through. Uh, uh, I think we read in Genesis one and Exodus twenty. We read them with all the different Targums in parallel, including the Peshitta. And time and time again, the Peshitta is is really tightly uh, uh, connected to the original Hebrew, whereas the other ones are expanding and changing words. So at least with the Peshitta Torah, that's directly from Hebrew. But but I, I was talking to, it was at ETS or SBL, I don't remember, I was talking to a specialist who's working on their PhD dissertation on the Peshitta of Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And he said the Chronicles is all over the place. It's bad. It's like the person didn't even... That it's it, it's nowhere near the same level of language skill that the, whoever translated like the Peshitta Torah. So it's it's not like one person translated the whole thing. It's like over generations, different people tried to translate. Um, we do have Aramaic or what we call Syriac translations of like Maccabees and things like that. So those were Greek into Aramaic, and then the Peshitta, uh, what we call the New Testament is all from Greek into the Syriac. Yeah, there's, and there's phraseology in there that would make no sense to a first century Aramaic-speaking Jew. Yeah, it's like, no, that wouldn't make sense. That would make sense to a third century Syriac-speaking Christian but uh, who didn't have knowledge of Jewish culture. That, that's, we see all things, a lot of things like that. One of the responses uh, then to the, Kevin is this person named Eric who says, we have Hebrew texts of Matthew and Hebrew. I think he means Hebrews. We have Aramaic of the others. Not much variant in the text there. That's not true. Okay, there, this is one of my pet peeves, is that when people say we have Hebrew texts of Matthew. No, we don't. No, uh, yeah, no, we don't. We, we have we, mid- we, medieval 
uh, well, and and beyond that, uh, I think what he's referring, what Eric here is referring to, is actually that we have uh, we have church fathers who reference a Hebrew Matthew, and I've talked about this at length on this show before, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Um, and so. Basically, what you have is every time that, that one of the church fathers quotes from the Hebrew Matthew, it can be found nowhere in our Gospel of Matthew. It yeah, is, it, was some, it was something different. It was something completely different. It fell out probably around the 10th century, we believe. And it fell out, it, it stopped being used because it became irrelevant. And I think the reason it became irrelevant was because uh, what the Hebrew Matthew originally was was probably either uh, Matthew or maybe some of Matthew's uh, students or uh, uh, disciples. Uh, they wrote a, something in Hebrew. Maybe it was Matthew actually taking notes uh, when, uh, when he was around Yeshua. And uh, then that was used, I'm sure everyone's heard of the Q source. Uh, it was used as, as a source document, and I think, this is what I believe, is that it was used as a source document. And that's how uh, Mark wrote his gospel. He, he wrote it just from his memory and then also using this source document, which I believe was the Hebrew Matthew. And then, of course, of course Matthew came back, and uh, in my opinion, he came back, he, he used uh, this document that he had originally written. Like you know, It's kind of like scribbling something down on a napkin. You scribble it down, and then what do you do? You, later, you write it. You really write it out. And so I think he took the, you know, the source document and Mark and his memory and he compiled the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, um, so then, of course, um, this goes on. Eric responds to me. I tell him my thoughts that Hebrew Matthew is, is a source text. He says, if you take Greek as primacy, then you must accept that Messiah sinned in that he was eating at a leper's house. However, the Arabic... That is, that is just so ridiculous. Go for it, Rob. Tell us why no, that's he, ridiculous. Just, we, we need to get... I, people are saying, you're strained from the show notes. Um, <laughs> Who look, cares? It's our article, show. And then if they have a quibble, they can post it on the, the review of... Because that's what Roth says. That's Roth's argument. Yeah, I know. It, it seems like Eric is uh, regurgitating uh, Andrew yeah, Gabriel here, here's Roth. The thing. Ruth is called the Moabitess all throughout the book of Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, right? Rahab is called Rahab the harlot, right? Does that mean she was still a harlot? No. Simon the leper was cured. He was someone who, it, it was a way for the, in, in literature to communicate to the reader who he was. that it's the same person. Yeah, the, people are satisfied with what is not bread, as Gary and I have been chewing on in, in Mishlei, Isaiah 55, people are satisfied with what is, are trying to seek satisfaction from what is not bread, what will not satisfy. It's, it's shallow. What people need to do is do the hard work, learn the languages, learn the texts. It's not a drive-through. I'm so sick of people who have not spent time doing the hard work, doing these drive-by uh, proofs, little little proofs that they think they have. Uh, Gary says that we didn't play the uh, the the mailbag sound clip. Well, sorry, we didn't. Um, you know. Okay, let's move on then. Let's move on. And actually, the next one, the next topic that we're we'll we'll move to the show notes. Okay, people, quit freaking out. 
Um, now, this is going to tie into the show notes, okay? Um, but I want to start, we'll, we'll talk about another piece of mail. I guess we'll open up, the, let's open up the mail bag, but this is going to tie into our uh, into our, our show topic, okay? Here, here you go, Gary. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. here. Yeah. So this is found on YouTube. You can Google it. And uh, this was someone responding to something that I had said on last week's show. They say, quote, this is a quote from me, no Gentile can become a Jew. I stand by that quote, by the way. End quote. This person, I'm not, uh, I forget who said this quote. Anyway, uh, this person says, help me understand what I should do with Rahab and Ruth. So none of the multitude that left Egypt were numbered. And none of their children were circumcised by Joshua. Okay, first of all, let's stop right there. Circumcision, okay. circumcision does not equate to becoming Jewish. You can't become Jewish because just because you get circumcised. No, and if you're if you're not circumcised, you're still Jewish. I yeah, mean, if, if yeah, you're exactly. born, if you're born, if you're an Israelite, but your father doesn't circumcise you, you're still mean Jewish. You're no longer an Israelite. It means that you can't participate in the Passover. Just like just like be the same. It says it's the same law for a Gair and for a natural born the uncircumcised cannot participate in passover yeah so so what i think what this person is doing is they're mixing up the idea of of uh bloodline and people of god israel is a people group jewish is a bloodline if you say i'm jewish meaning by blood not by religion but jewish by blood then that means that somewhere in your bloodline somebody descended from jacob okay if you say i'm part of israel you do not have to be jewish by blood to be part of israel paul tells us this very specifically right not all that are descended from abraham are is israel right okay um, this person goes on. Also, this makes me scratch my head when I read Romans 2.29. This is also puts a huge wrinkle in Ezekiel 47 for me. It shouldn't. I don't know why. Why would this put a huge wrinkle in uh, Ezekiel 47 for you? We may live among Dan, get a part of the, an inheritance given to Dan. They're talking about Ezekiel 47 when the Gentiles in the millennium receive, uh, receive a portion in, in, the, uh, in the land rights, right? So before the millennium... You don't have the, the Gentiles receiving any land rights, right? The, uh, the Gentile, the widow, and the Levite are all supposed to be given uh, uh, the offerings that come to the temple, right? Because they don't have an inheritance in the land. But in the millennium, it's not like that. Uh, we can have children and marry members of Dan and all of the other good stuff, but we will not be Danites. Uh, you know, people can become part of a clan, Without having blood in the clan. Let me ask you this. Uh, and once again, this is going to tie into our talk on repentance. But let me ask this. According to the to Jewish tradition, according to the rabbis, it is by the mother that you are Jewish, right? So then by that theology, Joseph did not have Jewish children, correct? Because his wife was Egyptian. Ephraim and Manasseh, however, make up one of the tribes, right? They make up two of the tribes. Yeah, yeah. They're they're like they're like one sixth of Israel. And, and how had, how is that? Their mom was Egyptian. How is that possible though? Did they stop being Egyptian? No, of course they didn't stop being Egyptian. Now I know the argument that their father was Jewish, but the question is: is if a person comes in 
and uh, beca- and is adopted into a family, does their blood change to that family? I have adopted sisters. They're black. They're from Africa. When they came and they were adopted by my parents, they didn't all of a sudden become white and become Dutch and Norwegian, as my father and mother are. That didn't happen. They stayed African. Did they become hags? Yeah, of course they did. Because that's what family they were adopted into. Did they be- become part of our family? Did they become part of our clan? Absolutely. Did their blood change and become part of the Norwegian Dutch bloodline? No, of course not. And Paul talks about this specifically in Galatians. The whole book of Galatians, in my opinion, is talking about the idea that, you know, that, and this is going on back in Yeshua's time, and it's going on in our time now, that if you convert, you become Jewish. You can't become Jewish. Your blood cannot change. You can become part of Israel. And you can lose your place in Israel. And the reason that this is all going to tie in to our talk today about repentance, and that's what we're talking about today is repentance, is because this comes down to the question of what is repentance? And is repentance different for Jews? Is it different for Gentiles? Because, and the reason I ask that is because, okay, now some some people might realize that our... um, uh, in our show notes. Oh, and by the way, uh, I, I, there was a mistake in the show notes. I put Ryan T. Anderson. It's not Ryan T. Anderson. It's Stephen L. Anderson is uh, one of our links. And I apologize for getting uh, for mixing those two up because Ryan T. Anderson is actually quite a, a uh, important figure when it comes to homosexual uh, fighting homosexual marriage and abortion for that matter. Um, and Stephen L. Anderson has won the Wackadoo Award, King of the Wackadoo Award on our show before. Anyway, um, so if we look at the Westminster Catechism, okay, I, I know this by heart because I was, I was, uh, I memorized a good portion of the Westminster Small Catechism uh, when I was being homeschooled growing up. Question 14 is, what is sin? Okay, so when we talk about repentance, it's a turning away, right? It's a turning away from sin. We'll talk about some of the uh, different ideas of what repentance actually is and is not from people on the internet here in a few minutes. But according to uh, the Westminster Catechism, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, the Torah of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the Torah of God. And what do they? And what is the Westminster Catechism? Where what do they cite to back that up? Leviticus. They cite the yeah. Torah. Leviticus five seventeen. Yeah. Go for it, Rob. You want to read First it? John three four. Oh, um, I have. Which, it here. Which, yeah, I'll read it. What do you want? Well, Leviticus five seventeen. If a soul sin, and that's the word nephesh there, commit any of these things which are forbidden to, forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord. Though he did not know it, and this is King James, though he wist it not, I think, yet he is guilty, he shall bear his iniquity. Yeah. Okay, so the Torah tells us specifically what sin is. It's uh, trans... And then they also quote uh, Epistle of Yaakov or James 4.17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So to do good, obviously, is to do God's commandments, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then first Paul John, says the Torah is good, the commandment is good. First John uh, three four. I love the book of First John. It's one of my favorite apostolic books. First uh, John three four also says, "Whosoever committeth sin transgress." Man, I'm not used to the King James. Transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of 
the Torah. Um, so the question then is, is the Westminster Confession right? Is transgression of the law sin? And so this then gets into the idea of, okay, so we know that the idea of law now from the churches is different, right? Than what I might think is law. So now it comes down to belief of what is law? What is Torah? Because the Christians today are going to say that Torah is not, you know, kosher laws don't need to be kept. Sabbath doesn't need to be kept. So they think that parts of the law have been done away with. So then uh, I'm leading us down this path to ask this question. If a person, if we're supposed to repent, we'll talk about what that means, but if we're supposed to repent, and let's pretend for a few seconds that we all agree that that means uh, asking forgiveness for sin or turning away from sin, okay? The question is, and let's even say that you need to repent to uh, to be saved, okay? And we'll talk about that too. But uh, let's say that you need to repent to be saved. So then my question is, since different people think that different parts of the law have been done away with, is repentance different for the person who believes the Torah has been done away with than it is for me? It, it At some level, it's got to be different. Why? Because what we're... Repentance, by definition, results in a change of behavior. That's right. But the Just qu- like this, if we refer back to this brilliant, concise definition from the Westminster Catechism, any want, of, any want meaning any lack of conformity unto or transgression of God's Torah... So, repentance, true repentance, will mean I'm, I'm turning away from what is contrary and turning, and turning towards what is in conformity unto the Torah of God. But, the, but my point is this, and this goes back to the, to the person who wrote in asking about no Gentile can become a Jew, okay? Um, I don't believe that there's a different law for Jew and Gentile. I believe that the law applies to Jew and Gentile alike. The whole law applies to Jew and Gentile alike. God doesn't have one set of commands for this person and a different set of commands for this person. And therefore, even though my... Well, the, the, the pushback, though, you're going to get is, well, no, the high priest has commandments for him that don't apply to anybody else. Okay, but, the, but I'm not... And a, women, women have commandments that don't apply to anyone else. And Levites have commands that don't apply to anyone else. Sure, but in the Torah, the, the, it's specifically spelled out that, that uh, different commands for uh, male and female and different commands for priest and non-priest, right? And Levite and non-Levite. There's no place in the Torah where it says these laws are for the Jews and these laws are for the Gentiles. That is true. And not only that, but it specifically tells us that in in several different places, it's not just in one or two verses. It says many times it'll say for you and the native born or the native born and the stranger, right? Right. Okay. So constantly throughout the Torah, we're t- being told that the that the stranger or the sojourner or however you want to translate that has to keep the same laws that the Jew does. And when I say Jew, I use that as a bloodline, not as a religion. 
Um, so I believe that the I understand what the pushback is, but the the point here is this: repentance, in my opinion, has to be the same for Jew and Gentile alike, because the Torah is the same for Jew and Gentile alike. Just because my Christian brother down the street doesn't believe that kosher is a law of God doesn't mean that it's not a law of God. In fact, even within the Torah, we have uh, commandments to bring to bring uh, sacrifices for unintentional sin. Right? Yep. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about... Well, let's play a clip. Let's do that. Let's listen to some of what's going on on the internet in terms of repentance. Um, this clip. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's listen to this clip. The Bible says that in order for a person to be saved, by the way, before we start this, just a side note, I love my Canadian brothers and sisters. I know a lot of them. We have them in the chat room right now. This gentleman is a perfect example of a Canadian accent. Most people might not hear it, but he phrases everything as a question. You might not know it, but repentance. That's what they, call up, they call that up talking. Yeah, he goes up at the end of every sentence, and this is this is a, a, a clear Canadian trait. The Bible says that in order for a person to be saved by the Lord Jesus, they must repent and believe. But what does biblical repentance truly mean? I wanted to challenge all of you out there, especially those of you who have, in my opinion, falsely adopted a view that repentance means turning from sin. Although that's a fantastic thing, that's not what the actual word means. And if we look at the Bible, there's no way it actually means that. So let's get into it. Now, the word is metanoia in the Greek, and that means a change of mind. Okay, hang on. I just want to let everyone know here. On his screen, what he's looking at is a Strong's Concordance. So this is this is kind of a red flag right here. It's not. It, it doesn't mean that what he's saying. Just because somebody uses a Strong's Concordance doesn't mean that they're necessarily wrong, or that they don't know what they're talking about. But it is a red flag. It means that we need to watch out for what he's saying as a translation. It's a change of mind, a change in the inner man. It does not mean a turning from sin. Although, I do believe that a natural uh, thing that will happen once you do repent, which is to change the inner man and to have a change of mind, you will turn from sin. It doesn't mean that. And it's actually dangerous to believe that every time you see the word repentance, it means turning from sin. Let's just take an example here. Um, Let's bring up God repenting. Did you know in the Bible, it says in many, many, many verses that God repented? But wait a minute. God doesn't have any sin to turn from. So if the biblical definition of repentance is that we turn from sin, then every single time we see the word repent in the Bible, it means that we're going to have to put that in what we're reading. Okay, so he's he's done several things here, and I'm I'm waiting for Rob to go off. Oi, 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 oi. I knew I'd did get I, you on that one, Rob. Oi? <laughs> Metanoeo, he's right. That's the Greek word often translated. Repentance means changing of mind. Literally, if we break it, it's a compound word. But there are so many problems. First of all, he's conflating. He's just now looking at 
Tanakh and Apostolic writings in English, looking for this word repent, thinking that metanoia is used every time there, and it's not. There's all sorts of different words. The word for repentance in Hebrew comes from lashuv, which means literally to turn. Lashuv, we get the noun teshuvah, meaning yeah, to turning. Turn, to turn away or to, to return. Turn away yeah. from sin, turn to God. And return shuv. to God, yeah. Yeah, Ezekiel's full of this word, shuv, repent. Actually, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up, Rob, because uh, this is I, I pulled this I pulled this from uh, the IBP Dictionary of Biblical Theology, and this article was written by J. M. Lund. Uh, he says, with only a few exceptions, and then he gives those excep- exceptions, which is, which is Jonah three ten and Isaiah nineteen twenty two. Repentance is associated in the Old Testament with God's chosen people. Thus, one should understand the concept usually expressed metaphorically by the Hebrew verb to turn, shuv, to be grounded in the gracious covenant that God had previously established with Israel. And he gives all of the, he gives a bunch of different uh, right. uh, cit- citations there. Since the people who entered into this covenant were to reflect God's nature, and he gives references again, their turning away in unbelief and unfaithfulness implies a personal rejection of him. So, in other words, thus to. Shuv, to turn away from sin, or to return, to turn around and return to God, is what repentance means. Right, right. And and just, and this is, like this guy's saying it's dangerous and all this. I mean, that's pretty sensational, well, if you ask the, me. The, bit, the thing that really struck me about his comment is that if, if, you, if you say that uh, repentance means uh, turning away from sin then you have to put that meaning on it every single time it's used in the Bible. When has language ever worked like that? Yeah, it never works. And here's the thing. With Shuv, at least with Tanakh, Shuv, we have to look at context. Just like you're saying, Caleb, Shuv is used like where it says to the, you were in Genesis 3, where it says, for you were taken from the dust to the dust you will return. El Afar Tashuv, you will return. The idea is just, it just means turn. It means to return or to turn. That's the basic meaning. Then you look in the prophetic context where it has to do specifically with the covenant definition, the covenant context that you're pointing out. Then it means return to the terms of the covenant and, and, and turn from transgressing the terms of the covenant. And this guy's totally, it's like, it's like that reality, that world of understanding is totally missed by him. Yeah, I completely agree. Listen to this. Okay, so this is from Lewis Sperry Schaefer. Lewis Sperry Schaefer is actually, uh, he was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary when my grandfather was at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, And he writes this, excuse me, in the uh, Systematic Theology, um, Volume 8, 1976. He writes, quite contrary to the impression which the usual... Theology has spread abroad is the correct definition of repentance. The usual idea being that it means sorrow or agony of heart respecting sin and wrongdoing. The true meaning of the word shows that it is a change of mind. And although there may be nothing to preclude that change being accompanied by grief, yet the sorrow itself is not repentance. He's right on that. It's not sorrow that we're looking for. It's a turning from sin to uh, to back to God. Instead, it is the reversal of mind, he says. Uh, I'll keep going. Another serious 
Arminian error respecting this doctrine occurs when repentance is added to faith or believing as a condition of salvation. It is true that repentance can very well be required as a condition of salvation. That's important. But then only because the change of mind which it is it is has been uh, involved when turning from every other confidence to the one needful trust in in Christ. Such turning about, of course, cannot be achieved without a change of mind. This vital newness of mind is a part of believing, after all, and therefore it may be and in is used as a uh, synonym for believing at times. I would say that I somewhat agree with him. However, I would say that since the scripture talks about, it talks about repentance as being a gift. I put this in the show notes, by the way. We'll read a couple of these. Um, and then I'm gonna, and then we'll listen to another clip. But uh, Acts five thirty one, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. There it is, grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Uh, and then Acts eleven eighteen, when they heard this, they uh, quieted down and glorified God, saying, "Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life." And then, of course, 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to can the we, knowledge of truth. Can we pause for a second? <clears throat> Back on can. that Acts 11.18. Yes. So the context is Acts 10 and 11, if you remember. Acts 10 introduces to a Gentile who totally loves Torah, loves Israel, right? And he prays, and uh, he, he gives charity, right? It's like God is just, it's, he's like the good ground that Yeshua talks about, right? This guy's ready. The Lord's preparing him and even uh, plans and has Peter in mind, the Holy Spirit does, to send Peter to Cornelius' house. That's, that's the context that Peter gets this vision. Peter gets the vision that three times, we all know the vision, that demonstrates to Peter, look, things are different than your, than your, your training in terms of the, there's popular Jewish uh, foibles or taboos that are. Did you say foibles? Yeah, is that the wrong word? <laughs> no, it's just a funny word, foible. Yeah, I don't think it's the right word. I think <laughs> I mean to say ta- uh, culturally it kind of uh, powerful um, taboos. Really, I guess that's the word. It's don't do it. You don't eat with the Gentiles. You know where Peter had just been preaching that this was to the ends of the earth. Yeshua had just told him this gospel was going to go to the ends of the earth. Well, now Peter gets his vision. Okay, he gets it. He goes. He learns not to call any uh, people unclean. And then in Acts 11, he's explaining to, because it says then some of his brothers from the circumcision group are saying, you went in and ate with Gentiles. In other words, they had that same, they're like, what are you doing, man? You're, that's crazy. And he's like, look, God's showing me that this is, that that's, that's a tradition of man, that we got we to get rid of that. And so he, he goes and tells them what's going on. And then this is verse 18 here of Acts 11. It says, when those brothers, Jewish brothers, heard this, they quieted down a glorified God, saying, well then. Because this is contrary to what they, you know, what popular Jewish thought was. God has granted to the goyim also the repentance of life. So the key words there also, repentance unto life. That means they're going, wow, the commandments apply to the Gentiles too. Now, we do know from the Gospels that Yeshua did, did talk about that. He said, look, 
prophets not welcome in his hometown. There were many lepers in the time of uh, Elisha, but none of them were saved except Naaman the Syrian, right? He mentions, and then he says that Elijah, says there were many widows in the time of Elijah, but he was sent to the woman, the Syrophoenician woman. So even Yeshua in his, in his public ministry taught about, about uh, prophetic living word of God going to non-Israelites. Um, anyway, so we, we don't have to go too far down this road, but I just think that this key word here from Acts 5.31, grant repentance in 11, granted has granted repentance even unto Gentiles, not, not even just to us Jews, but to Gentiles also. Important stuff to to chew on. So, oh, so the chat room has uh, now uh, commented twice. Foible, noun, one, a minor weakness or eccentric eccentricity in someone's character. They have to tol- tolerate each other's little foibles. <clears throat> Leave it to the chat room to come up with uh, <laughs> our, our needed information. Um, okay, the, the point that I had with the scriptures that we read about from Acts and, and the other ones from 2 Timothy is that uh, it talks about repentance being granted. It's given by God. It's not something that we do. It's not something that we obtain. I mean, it is, but it's not. It's granted by God. What else is granted by God? Faith. Faith is granted by God. And what I would say is that faith... We use, we use faith as if it's belief, right? If you have faith, what, what do people usually think of? Believing in God. But that's not what it is. I like see. mental, it means in common today, I think people think mental assent to an opinion. Like, yeah, exactly. Like agreement with an opinion. Like it's something that just goes on in your head or something. See, but I think of... of uh, I think of faith as an overarching, encompassing umbrella word. What is faith? Faith is not only belief; it's also repentance. It's also turning to God. It's also um, it's also being sanctified unto God. It's being justified, sanctified. Right? It's all of these things. It's keeping the commandments. All these things are faith. Faith is used in the apostolic scriptures as a verb. We don't have that in in English, do we? To have faith. Or to faith, we say to believe. I guess we right? say it's to believe. We but change it, it to a verb. Yeah, we, but we change. No, we change. We change the word. Right. In in Greek, it's used as a verb. Right. And so I, I and that's what I basically what I'm saying. I think that repentance is part of faith. It's not part of. It's not necessarily part of justification. Justification happens. Boom! At an instant. Right. We're justified by God. But repentance is part of the ongoing, uh, the ongoing act of faith, which is a gift of God, in my opinion. Um, so let's listen to another clip. This is from Stephen L. Anderson, who has, in fact, gotten, I got to say, the thing that I, I was praying and thinking about uh, some of the you know, conversations that I've had, and I thought about Stephen Anderson, and I thought, you know, Here's a man who professes to be uh, a believer in the Messiah. He has said that he has, uh, you know, he's saved by faith alone. He says that Jesus is his his uh, savior. All these kind of things. Um, 
And some of his, you know, when he talks, some of the stuff that he says, I'm like, yeah, he's actually right on that. But he's got so much hate in his heart towards people. And he's, uh, you know, he's just so off on on so many things. It's, you know, I think a lot of people just write him off as, as uh, you know, Westboro Baptist Church uh, kind of person. And maybe maybe he is, but he definitely has some things that uh, theologically... He, he's, you know, he's got some sound theological doctrine, not a lot of it, but he's got some of it. Anyway, uh, let's listen to what he has to say on repentance. So many understand the term repentance to mean turning from sin. This is not a biblical definition of repentance. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, this hang Bible on. study channel. Wait, hang on. This isn't Stephen Anderson. I'm sorry. Um, was that right? Hang on, this is not Steven Anderson. Or, yeah, this is not Steven Anderson. This is somebody else. I'm sorry, I got caught, caught off guard because I have something mislabeled. Let's listen to this one instead. So many understand the term repentance to mean turning from sin. This is not a biblical definition of repentance. And this Bible study channel, we're looking at the Bible. Not because it's popular, because now I feel like on social media, there's this growing virus of this legalistic, uh, sinless perfection that has mutilated the scripture, applied their own meaning to the word repentance. And as we just saw, it can be easily debunked because anyone out there that thinks that that's what it actually means, when we look at the concordance, it says a change of well, mind, not a When we look at the Strong's sin. concordance. That's right. Well, actually, what he's touching on here, I, I kind of I kind of hear what he's saying because what he's fighting here is, an, is, an, um, is um, perfectionism, perfectionist, perfection doctrine. The idea that once you uh, repent and turn to God, you never sin again. Lex Myers is someone who has, who has put this out there, right? What are you laughing at, Rob? <laughs> I'm sorry. Someone asked for how to spell what's the Paleo Hebrew for the word foible. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and so it's it's mouth, nail, hand, house, goad. <laughs> And so someone said, it's eating the nails in your hand instead of pounding them into the house would definitely be a character flaw. Rage so, Bible anyway. is interpreted by experts. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, kid. Okay, I, so, so <laughs> let's go back. So we're talking about perfection, perfectionism, right? What's the problem with perfectionism? It's not biblical. Yeah, it neglects, uh, it neglects the Greek for sure because, uh, you know, when I was talking to Lex about this, I was bringing up First John <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, once again, going back to First John, First John one eight, and the the Greek there is uh, it's continuous, right? Rob is totally off in his own land right now. Uh, so the no, Greek, the Greek in, in the, <laughs> I'm yeah. So the, the Greek in First John one eight is continuous, and when I brought this up to Lex, he basically said, uh, "Yes, you have to take all of Scripture." You can't just take one verse, which I totally agree with. And then he talked about other places in John where it talks about sin no more and, and stuff like that. What he neglected to do was actually deal with First John 1, 8 and the grammar there. Repentance is an ongoing thing. Repentance is something that we continue to do. And another perfect example of this is King David, right? King David was a man after God's own heart. And then he sins with... Uh, with his lady friend, right? Sends the guy off to the front lines, takes his wife, right? How how would uh how would David be a man after God's own heart 
And then if perfection doctrine is true, how would David be a man after God's own heart and then sin like that? It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Um, so let's talk, let's listen to, I, I love this quote. This is from Voss. Um, Gerhardus Voss. Yes. And I actually, he's a a monster. Yeah. And I, I mean, he's got, in terms of biblical theology and I mean, he really was a man. Oh, here's a, here's a interesting tidbit tidbit about Gerhardus Voss. So he was what they call old Princeton before Princeton went liberal. He was the old Princeton reform preacher. Voss did his dissertation in like ancient Syriac and Arabic. Like it was, I mean, this, this guy was a serious academic when it came to, to Arabic and Syriac. And then he ended up being like a, a major reform uh, preacher and write, author on biblical theology, um, etc. So anyway, just a little plug. Now I haven't read all his stuff, but I know that he's... Uh, He's one of those major 20th century defenders of reform tradition. Well, let's listen to what he has to say about, um, <clears throat> pardon me, I got something in my throat. Let's listen to what he has to say about uh, repentance. This obviously isn't Voss himself. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is somebody reading a quote from Voss. Here we go. Gerhardus Voss elaborates on Christ's message of recognizing our sin, repenting or truly turning away from it, and then submitting to Christ, quote, Our Lord's idea of repentance is as profound and comprehensive as his conception of righteousness. Of the three words that are used in the Greek Gospels to describe the process, one emphasizes the emotional element of regret, sorrow over the past evil course of life, metomelame. A second expresses reversal of the entire mental attitude, metanoium. The third denotes a change in the direction of life, one goal being substituted for another, epistrephomai. Repentance is not limited to any single faculty of the mind. It engages the entire man, intellect, will, and affections. Again, in the new life which follows repentance, the absolute supremacy of God is the controlling principle. He who repents turns away from the service of mammon and self to the service of God, unquote. Boom. I don't, I, I yes, I completely agree. Repentance turns away from mammon and self and turns to God. And this goes back to the word that we were talking about, shuv, right? Um, And one of the things that I notice uh, in the Gospels, thanks to my father who brought this point up when I was telling him what our show topic was going to be, was that repentance is often coupled with believing in Yeshua, right? Right? Mark one fifteen, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, we have another one. Actually, I don't have a reference for this one. Oh, maybe this is all one, one verse. Oh, no, it's Acts. Acts 20, 21. It says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews 6, 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ or the Messiah, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance uh, from dead works and of faith toward God. So I think, once again, this goes back to the idea that faith encompasses many things. It's not just a belief. 
And repentance is one of those things. That turning away from self, that turning away from evil, that turning away from wickedness, turning away from sin, returning or turning back to God and living a life unto him. Thoughts? That's great. I do, I have a, if we wanted to look at a quote from Josephus go for that it. Is, gives a slightly different angle. Yeah, go for it. You want to do it? Now, this is from one of the three. So the three mentioned there, epistrophe, which is like a, that's the, the like conversion. Like that Voss changing. was talking about. What's that? That Voss was talking about. That Voss was talking about, yeah. And then there's the metanoia, the change of, change of mind, and metamelomai, which, has, which is the, that emotional inner uh, sense of remorse that he was talking about. All those are great words for studies. But uh, let me, where did I put it? I have a, a quote from Josephus. Now, this is from Life. So if anybody, this is all available online. You can read Josephus's Life. But he uses this phrase, um, uh, this concept of repentance, metanoio, and pistis, or faith, in a phrase. That it has, it's a military connotation. So if anybody's familiar with Josephus, he's kind of like this turncoat, right? I mean, he, was, he tells in the book Life, which we believe he wrote probably in the 90s. So 20 plus years after the temple was destroyed, he's living on a, you know, on Roman dime. He's probably a on the right. Line. <laughs> but he's, he's writing all these stories to tell interested people about, you know, what he, his history, what he lived through. Anyway, he writes this autobiography and available online. Anyway, he tells how he's a priestly family and how he, how he studies with these different groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, etc., but in the end, anyway, he ends up being appointed like a, a military leader in Galilee in the north. This is like in the 60s or whatever. So this is, uh, he's, reflect, he's writing in the 90s, but he's reflecting back. And he talks about different things that he encounters as he's um, uh, leading this military uh, unit. And at one point, there's, there's other Jewish groups that are fighting against him that want to kill him for whatever reason. And one person, and then now he trans, the translation from the 18th, it's, it's Jesus, it's called Jesus. If you read it in English, it says he's talking to a guy named Jesus, but this is not Jesus of Nazareth. Like, from the Gospels, yeah. right? This is just, a, it's a popular, Yeshua was just a popular Jewish name. Okay, so he says, uh, then this, 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 Jesus had been part of a group who, had, who were plotting to assassinate Josephus. They wanted to take him out. So this, I think, if I remember right, this takes place in Tiberias, somewhere up there north. Anyway, so he ends up, he learns of this scheme that this group wants to kill him. And then he, he ends up, through, through time, calls this, this leader named Jesus, this other guy, to himself. And, this is, and so this is uh, Josephus' life, line 110. So there's just like 110, 100 and something verses, and it's, this is passage number 110. It says, I then called Jesus to me by himself, so privately, and told him, I was, told him that I was not a stranger to that treacherous design that he had against me, that is to kill him, nor was I ignorant by whom he was sent for. That, how, that however, I would forgive him what he had done already if he would repent of it and be faithful to me hereafter. So, the, the context here is that Josephus has his marching orders, right? He's a military leader, and he has local, uh, other 
these other local groups up in Galilee that don't like him. And they're scheming on the edge to try to take him out. And he tells one of their guys, he says, look, I'll forgive this. Now, the word forgive is, is a little different than, it's not the same uh, forgive, as, uh, but it, it has the same connotation. I'll, I'll let it go, but you will repent. You, this is metanoia. If you would repent and be faithful and become faithful to me. So this has nothing to do with salvation. This has nothing to do with, uh, you know, going to heaven or repenting of sin. But it's a, a, an account from a first century Jew who's writing in Greek, describing a military situation where he told an opposing group leader who was not, a, that they were just like a grassroots type of thing. Look, repent of what you did and be faithful to me. And the point is, it means accept my leadership, come in line with the program that I've been charged for, and repent, which means in the word there is repent, repent of this other thing you've been involved in. I think that's helpful. It's just, it gives us another first century snapshot in Koine Greek of this type of phraseology of repentance and faith. Can can I say one thing, Ron? Yeah, I, I I think that uh, I think that uh, what you bring up is a great point. Repentance, when we're talking about repentance to God, repentance from sin to God, it's not the golden ticket to get into the pearly white gates. That's not what repentance should be used for. It shouldn't be viewed as if you repent, you're going to heaven. That's the wrong message in my mind. The correct message is, if you repent, you can come into covenant relationship with God. It's not about everlasting life with God. It's about having covenant relationship with the most holy God. In my mind, that's what repentance is and that's what it should be presented as. Too many times I think that people present repentance and faith in God as your golden ticket to get into the pearly white gates. If you repent and you believe, then guess what? You get to live forever in in, uh, paradise. That negates the idea that what that's not the goal. The goal is not to get into the get into heaven. The goal in my mind is to have a covenant relationship with the most holy God. That's the point. And that's what repentance does. We when we repent, we turn from our the wickedness of our lives. We become unbond we, we are no longer servants to sin and to wickedness. We're no longer sins to Satan, but we come into covenant relationship and become servants of the Most High God. Right? True that. Anyway, I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. Uh, did no, you... it's okay. I was just uh, thinking that it means you, you, you're a, leaving one path and you're adhering to another. And faithfulness is the word of that adherence. Is Faithfulness is your adherence or perseverance within the path you're on. Now, true faith, of course, is, the, is enduring, is faith with Yeshua's program, because Yeshua's program is eternal life. And he's already, Yeshua already is eternal life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He already is alive. He's not going to change. So it's our participation in him is the only program that ultimately is persevering 
because his words are truth and the word of God endures forever. It abides and endures forever. There's, um, that there's no fading, no death, no changing that his word is eternal. And that's, that's where we want to build our house. That's where we want to store our treasure. So any other program that you might consider faith, because in this world we think of different religions have different faiths, like someone might be a Muslim faith or a Buddhist faith or whatever. But any, any program that is not genuine discipleship to Yeshua might be called faith in this world, and people might fight for it, you know, fight in this world trying to defend their faith. But ultimately, if it's not grounded in genuine discipleship to Yeshua and with a new covenant heart, it's build. They're building castles on sand. Yep. Amen. All right. Well, that's all I got. That's it. You got anything else, Rob? Boom. Um, hmm. <laughs> I just. I, I'm stuck with this idea of the Rob and Caleb show being a distraction. I would never want us to be a distraction to anybody. So I would say, if we're a distraction to you, don't listen to us. Hmm, yeah. read, read your Bible. Yeah. But, you know, back to the original thing. I, I, one thing that gets me is those drive-by comments, you know, that people make like, oh, the Peshitta, Yeshua would be a sinner if the, if the Greek text is correct. You know, stuff like that, that they really don't know what they're talking about. They're, they haven't done the hard work, but they're ready to to shoot their opinions out there. And this is the way I look, think of it. I'll listen, I'll give weight to your opinion when you do the hard work and you're dealing legitimately with competence from the original languages. If you're going to argue about, about language, then make sure you've done your homework and have done the time to grow in competency in those languages so that we can speak intelligibly with one another. Then if we degree, disagree, well, then we'll go from there. But, but for the people who are on the sidelines, who haven't invested that, but yet they're grabbing these little sound bites, thinking that they're building theology from it, that's, that's, that's a waste of their time. That's, that is a big distraction. Yeah, somebody, uh, when it came to the Aramaic primacy, uh, somebody who's prominent in the Messianic world said that, you know, people act like this is a huge deal. Well, one of the reasons that I think that, you know, I don't want to turn anybody off from uh, from studying the scriptures. You know, if you're set on Aramaic primacy, okay, that's up to you. Um, but the reason that I think it's a big deal is because God has not given us any Aramaic texts. And so when people say that, the, and I've said this before, but when people say that the... That the uh, Apostolic scriptures were written in Aramaic. What it means is that all we have is translations. And so people are able to twist. Oh, well, that's not actually what the scripture says. And then they have to cut, you know, especially with Hebrew primacy. Oh, well, then they have to come up with what they think. It could have been one of several words. And I'm going to choose whatever word I want that's going to fit my interpretation. Another way to think of this, too, is that I would argue that the vast majority of the people out there that argue for Aramaic primacy, A, don't know Aramaic, and B, are really fans of, like, 
the George Lamsa of the Andrew Gabriel Roth or Nitsari Press. In other words, what they're enthusiastic about is, a, is the claims of these particular teachers. And years will go by, and they'll be following those teachers, but without actually learning Aramaic themselves. That's, that, and that was one of the reasons why I was really motivated to publish that article on our blog, was to say, look, you guys are, are swallowing this, and you haven't even done the homework. You're just, you like the idea of Aramaic primacy. You like the idea of it. It has certain appeal to you. It helps you criticize the traditions, maybe people that had taught you other things based on the Greek that you think are a lie now. And so it helps you uh, strengthen that gap between uh, you know, the past experience with Greek and now this new possibility of genuine Aramaic, this idea of authenticity is, is like really alluring. And uh, But that that is not grounded in in fact in reality i completely agree all right well it's been fun as always uh we hope that you enjoyed our look at repentance today um and yeah send us some emails let us know what you want us to talk about subjects that you would like uh to us to touch on and you can do that by sending us an email, uh, radio at torresource.com, chegg at torresource.com, rvanhoff at torresource.com. Find us on Facebook, backslash The Robin Caleb Show. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it for us. I don't know, you know. Uh, I can say this about repentance. When it comes to repentance, all we need to do is turn from sin back to our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. 